Give our praise team, our worship team, a round of applause this morning. Great job, guys. Appreciate all you do. If you will, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. It's going to be a little while before we get to John chapter 8. Some of you have already looked at the outline this morning and said, well, we'd be breaking for lunch. Um, no, some of you are very smart in your comments, but no. Um, we're going to run right through this, though. Uh, you'll see where I'm headed with this. You, you know what's really amazing is when we begin to size up the cross and we begin to look at what the cross was all about. I mean, think about it. The whole theme of our worship this morning was about the cross and what was done at the cross and the provision of the cross in our lives. And so many times we are ready to say, well, you know what the cross represents? It represents God sending his son to die for our sins. Now, you would be right in saying that. But so many times we miss that there's another part to all that. And that is the fact that he not only died for our sins, he also made it possible for our shame and our guilt to be taken away. And you see, that's what we need to not only be excited about the sin going, but the guilt and the shame and the effects of that are gone also. And so this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. So look at the introduction. Two destructive forces that are found in the human heart are guilt and shame. The two seem to work in tandem with each other, destroying its victim. Victory over guilt and shame is only found in the provision of Jesus Christ. The provision of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want you to pretend like this morning that you and I are just sitting in maybe in the office over there and it's just some one-on-one -on -one counseling going on. Because I believe there's something here that God wants to say to, to many of you. And I would dare say that probably most of us this morning fall into one of four categories when it comes to this idea of guilt and shame. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're battling these two things and some of you are fully aware of it. Some of you are not aware of it. Some of you are not aware of how it motivates you to act and react the way you do and how it makes you feel about yourself, your relationship with others, and life in general. There's a second category of people experiencing shame and guilt, and that is those who know that there's somewhere back in your past, you know you did something. It's something you find it hard to forgive yourself for, and you think... And by the way, this is the wrong thinking. You think God's not going to forgive you for it. And so that's the second category of those that are here. Then some of you are experiencing guilt and shame because you've possibly been abused by someone at some point in your life. And the guilt and the shame that surround whatever took place there still plagues you to today. You were a victim. You had nothing to do with what, to, what happened to you, but yet you took away from that abuse, not only what you dealt with personally, the, possibly the physical part of it, but you are dealing with the shame and the guilt that came from that. And then fourthly, some of you are experiencing guilt and shame and you have absolutely no idea what to do about it. No idea what to do about it. So we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to attempt to identify certain behaviors and beliefs associated with your guilt and shame and hopefully help you understand how you can deal with it this morning. Now, 
Look on your outline. We're going to quickly go through a lot of this so you don't have to worry about being here a long time, okay? First of all, the guilt of sin. The definitions of guilt. Let me give you some ideas of what we're talking about here. Remorseful awareness of having done something wrong. That's our first definition. Secondly, bearing responsibility for an offense or wrongdoing. Thirdly, answerable to the judgment and condemnation of God. If you're to say, okay, give me a broad definition of guilt, that's what you have right there. Now, let, let me clarify something. In the book of Romans, in the first three chapters, Paul clearly outlines the whole idea of guilt, our guilt, as it relates to us as human beings. In chapter one, he says this, that we are given over to our sin. In chapter two, he says God's going to judge that sin. In chapter three, it says we're all guilty before God because of our sin and the guilt and the shame that surrounds it all. Now, let me just tell you where many people are living, including many Christians that I've encountered. We're living as, as if Paul only wrote three chapters to the book of Romans. We're living with the whole idea, and we kind of close it out with that idea, for all his sin comes short of the glory of God, and it's almost like we shut the book, and then we try to live our lives based on that. How many of you are guilty of that in some way or form, or maybe there was a time in your life where you were guilty of that? You see, there's the rest of the book. The rest of the book clearly outlines what God has done for the provision of our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And so, but many of us, we still are living in that remorseful awareness of having done something wrong. We're bearing responsibility for an offense or a wrongdoing. We're answerable, and we know that, to the judgment and condemnation of God. And so, therefore, we're still living under that condemnation. But you know something? It's just like what we sang. The cross has a final word. Jesus paid it all. It's all surrounded in that. So there are types of guilt. So look on your outline, types of guilt. Number one, there's no guilt. There, there are some people who are out there who are living with no guilt association whatsoever. Now, what I would say about these people is they are so far away and under the awareness of what their sin could do and has done in their life. They, they absolutely, they have no conscience basically. And the Bible says in 1 Timothy, Paul's telling in the context of this verse is basically he's talking about the end times and how people are just kind of out doing their own thing, teaching their own thing, believing their own thing. They're not using the word of God to, 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 to take their mandate of how to deal with their life and all that. And so what he says about him, he says, these people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. You're in a bad place. When your conscience is dead, you're in a bad place. Matter of fact, let me just say this. You don't want to be around people <laughs> whose consciences are dead. I mean, you're, you're putting yourself in a bad situation there. So we have no guilt. Second of all, we have appropriate guilt. Appropriate guilt. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, look at here on the screen. Paul says, now I rejoice... Not that you were made sorry. He's talking about the context of our sin, okay? But that your sorrow led to repentance, okay? So basically he's saying, I'm, I'm not rejoicing that you were made sorrowful. I'm not rejoicing in that. But let me just tell you something. Your sorrow led you to the right place. Your sorrow led you to the goal. 
The goal is repentance. The goal is the, the forgiveness of sin. And he's basically saying that. And then he says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner. Now, what does that imply? We can be made sorrow in an ungodly manner. And for some of you sitting here today, you, you're sorry. You're guilt, the shame that you're carrying, the guilt that you're carrying is leading you to an ungodly outcome. So he's very clear here. He says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. That means what's, what, was, what seemed to be where it couldn't be repaired is now repairable. What was missing in our relationship with one another, what was missing in your relationship with God is now available. He's basically saying there can be a healthy solution to where you are. If you're in sin, if you're living in guilt, if you're plagued by shame, there can be a healthy solution. And then he says, for godly sorrow produces repentance. Again, the goal, leading to salvation. Now, let me say this about the word salvation here. Most of us, when we think of salvation, what do we think of? We think of the provision, what the cross brought, the fact we can be saved, and now we're made right before God. Is that right? Yeah, that's our initial awareness of what the cross is all about and the fact that he died for us that salvation may come to our heart. But, do you know, but did you know every time you're delivered from sin and delivered from your guilt and your shame, salvation has come to you? Not that you have to have another salvation experience, but it, the same thing happens again and again. How many of you, after you got saved, you live perfectly? None of us. But look here. He said, your godly sorrow produces repentance. He's basically saying, this is appropriate. This is what the goal is, leading to salvation. That shouldn't be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death, and it's not healthy. Now, let me tell you several things about the sorrow of the world. Number one, I believe it was created by the enemy himself. The enemy is the one that approached Adam and Eve in the garden and, and basically presented sin and basically said, uh, uh, with this sin, he didn't tell them this on the front end, by the way, but on the back end, here's what they found out. Their sin and what he uh, tempted them to do with sin Produce the guilt and the shame that they felt later. Many of us can identify with that. But what he's saying here is this. The way the world goes about it, the world cannot offer, listen, the world cannot offer any solution to your sin, to your shame, and to your guilt. You can't. You say, well, eight sessions of counseling can sure help me. It may help you deal with it, but listen, only the creator of the world, only the redeemer of the world can provide for your sin, the provision for your sin and what needs to take place. So worldly sorrow, listen, is guilt without hope while godly sorrow is guilt with hope. It is called appropriate guilt. And beside that, put conviction. Appropriate guilt is what we would call conviction. The enemy attempts to use guilt in our lives to destroy us. God desires to use conviction in our lives to bring something about that is healthy, that, that we become aware of what he's provided for us. A third type of guilt, unfounded guilt. This is where someone takes on the guilt of others. 
They live under a, a cloud of guilt and therefore they take on the guilt of others. They're the person that's always saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, when it's not necessary. You see, unfounded guilt is also known as the guilt of victims. It's those who have been possibly abused at some point in their life and they had nothing to do with it, but they take on the guilt and the shame of that. And it's unfounded. Next, there's destructive guilt. This happens when a person cannot move past their guilt into the realm of God's grace. And so therefore what they do is they sit here and for some of them it's decades, for some it's years, I mean, and even longer, a whole lifetime. They can't get beyond it. They've heard verses like God can deal with our sin. They've heard verses like God deals with our guilt and we don't have to live under that anymore. But somehow they still live under the cloud of their guilt. You see, at some point we gotta realize that God wants us to exchange that guilt for his grace. And the fact that he brings that by way of the cross. And so we see this distracted. Now listen, this person is not a hard-hearted person living in rebellion. This person cannot forgive themselves. And therefore they feel God cannot forgive them. And this is the point where the emotions of their guilt consumes them. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen in my life for about 10, 10 years of my life. I lived under this, this cloud of guilt, knowing fully aware of what the cross represented. And I still chose, listen, I'm telling you, I chose to live under that. You say, no, you, you, how do you, yeah, I chose it. Because God made all the provision. I just didn't take him up on it. Let's keep moving. The shame of sin. Let me give you definitions of shame. Number one, a painful emotion caused by guilt. A condition of humiliating disgrace. A possible manifestation of self-hatred. The two work together. Every person I've ever known that has dealt with guilt deals with some form of shame. It comes together. You see it intersect. You see it work in tandem to bring someone down. So here's what that person who deals with this manifestation of self-hatred. They feel inferior to others. They have a low self-worth of themselves or idea of themselves. They despise themselves. I've seen it. I've lived it. Some of you have lived it. That's not what God provided. Types of shame. There's no shame. Nothing bothers this person. They become numb to their shame. They begin to live in rebellion and become hard-hearted, emotionless. They cannot feel any longer. Then something happens in their life and their reaction sometimes shocks them, which they wonder, what was that all about? You ever lived there? Shocked at what comes out when people begin to squeeze you? Have you, ever, have you looked lately at our world right now? How many of you are amazed that there seems to be no shame out there? No shame. How did that happen? Somewhere along the line, they severed their conscience. Their conscience. Somewhere along the line, they quit. They, they became deceived by what the enemy was presenting and what the world was presenting, and they got away from the truth of God. For some, it was just outright rebellion. For others, they were deceived which became their form of rebellion. I mean, I even mentioned some of this last week. I am amazed at where we are right now as a nation. 
There are things going on that I am appalled that I'm like, and I'm not trying to be a naysayer. I'm just amazed at the fact that there's no shame associated with some things that we're celebrating. Types of shame. Well, there's appropriate shame. Again, this is a form of conviction. Conviction is the idea that there is sorrow. And from that sorrow, the intention of that sorrow, that conviction is to bring about change in such a way that restoration can take place. Guilt, however, and shame, not going in that direction, always produces something that's destructive. And the enemy is the author of it. And, and we need to understand that. So there's this type of appropriate shame. When we feel shame for what we have done and it leads to repentance, the emotion of shame is, triggered, is intended to trigger, to lead us on a search to the one who can take it away. Let me just say this. Occasionally parents will bring their young children and they'll say, you know, they keep asking questions about salvation. They, they say they love Jesus. They, they know the whole story of him dying on the cross. And boy, it, I'm just going to tell you, that's one of the thrills as a pastor is to be able to sit down across from a, a child and talk Jesus with them. Because their idea of who Jesus is is so precious. And their idea of, of what it is. But you know something? There are times in which I sit across from a child and they understand the whole story of the cross and they understand all these different things and they even understand the concept of sin. But sometimes I sit across from a child and, and let me help you understand this. If that child does not have never experienced godly sorrow, then, then I'm afraid that they're not ready yet. You, you gotta feel something. There's gotta be a heaviness to your sin. There's got to be that idea that something is wrong here that needs to be corrected. And my only hope is what Jesus brings by provision of the cross. And a child, an adult, anyone, any age has to make that connection that that is their only hope. And that's where I want us to understand that is a good kind of shame. The appropriate shame. Then there's something called unfounded shame. When, when we feel shame for something that has happened to us, it's the shame of the victim. And again, just like someone who's been abused, possibly physically abused, they take on the guilt of that situation. They take on the shame of that situation and they have no idea what to do with it. Lastly, there's destructive shame when we begin to feel that our identity is found in our shame. This leads us into painful emotions and penetrating effects. Things that affect us in ways we, we can ever, could never imagine. So the painful, look on your outline, the painful emotion of guilt and shame. First of all, there's worthlessness. I'm not worth fixing because I failed. I'm not worthy of, love, worthy of being loved because I failed. There's a lot of people out there with that. There's a lot of people out there that need to know that if they feel that way, that there's a God that loves them. There's a provision for the, what they're feeling, that they don't have to live there anymore. <clears throat> Second of all, excuse me, there's an idea of hopelessness. It's that idea that I can't be fixed. I'm hopeless. 
Maybe they got these messages from their parents. Maybe they got the messages from the inner working of the enemy, just trying to plant thoughts in their head. Or, or, or maybe they're just believing themselves. And there's this whole this thing that they're dealing with, they don't know how to shake. There's despair. No one or anything can save me now. I've crossed the line. But the Bible says, for God so loved the world, the world. Who does that include? Each one of us, any one of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did he give his only begotten son? That forgiveness can come to those who feel that there's no hope, that there's no, that it's just despair. And you know what's interesting about what he was willing to die for? It doesn't matter what it was or what it is. He said, I've died for that. I've taken care of that. No matter how bad you think your sin is, it's covered. It's covered. Rejection. The painful emotion of guilt and shame's rejection. I feel abandoned. A person who experiences shame, they're, they're not being abandoned, but here's what happens. There's a withdrawal. They isolate themselves, but yet they would say it feels like rejection. It feels like rejection, but who's doing that? They're doing it to themselves. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, God comes walking in the garden soon after. Where were they? Oh, God, hey, how you, how you doing? It's great to see you. Boy, I miss you. No, God had to call out to them. Where are you guys at? Where are you? Probably the first time God ever showed up there in the garden and they didn't present themselves. Now, of course, God knew what was going on, didn't he? But, but you know something What's interesting is they went and what did they do? They hid themselves. They went and hid themselves. That's what, that's what guilt and shame does. And, and you, know what, you know what was really going on? It's more than them just hiding themselves. We're talking about a loss of intimacy. That's what took place. That's the reason when we as individuals live under a cloud of guilt and shame and we have accepted the provision of Jesus Christ by way of the cross, it affects our relationships. It affects our relationship with God because we don't want to face him. It affects our relationships with our spouse, possibly with our children. It, and it goes on because we're not going to let anyone but so close. You ever heard someone say, yeah, they're a great person, but you can only get so close. Have you ever wondered why? Many of us would jump to the conclusion they've been hurt by somebody and they're not going to let you get so close. And that may be true. But you know what I found? A lot of people don't know what to do with their guilt and their shame. And that's the reason you can't get so close. They don't know what to do with it. It's a cloud they live under. You're only going to get so close. Here's an interesting thought concerning this. When it comes to guilt and shame, too often our self-image rests solely on how we look at our past behavior. We end up measuring ourselves only through a memory. Day after day, year after year, we tend to build our personalities on the rubble of yesterday's personal disappointments and failures. Anybody guilty of that? I've been there. I lived there for more than a decade. These painful emotions can lead to destructive behaviors. Have you ever seen someone, maybe a rebellious teenager, just kind of act out? Those of you who are 
educators, you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you just see them. Some of you have teenage children. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You weren't were a teenage child. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, I can pretty much cover everybody in the room, okay? But I want you to think about that. What's really going on there? Some of us are like, devil got to hold that youngin'. You know? <laughs> some of us are like, uh, somebody, something wrong, you know. But we can't really identify it sometimes. But sometimes, you know what that child needs? That teenager? They need someone to introduce them to the one that can take care of their deepest need, which is the shame and guilt that they're feeling. And many of the children that I've seen, and many of the teenagers I've seen as a student pastor that were acting out is because they didn't know what to do with that. And as a result of that, they kept doing, they went into destructive behaviors. You couldn't get so, but so close to them. There was a disconnect between them and the people in their life. All because of this. And we're all can be guilty of it. The penetrating effects of guilt and shame. We begin to get into this whole idea of survival mode. So what happens? Look on your outline. Projection of feelings onto other people. Here's what happens. And this happened in, in our marriage, in, in my and Tina's marriage. Our marriage didn't start off on the best of terms. We, we, we had to battle some shame and guilt in our life. And, and we saw each other as a source of our guilt and shame. We really did. And as a result, there was a loss of intimacy. It wasn't what it could have been or what it could be. And so when we looked at one another, it was that source that was there. So we project that on the other person. Second of all, obsessive compulsive behaviors. Most of the time when you hear of obsessive compulsive behaviors, you're dealing with a person that, that has to be in control. Okay? And the reason they want to be in control is because they feel like if they're in control then possibly they can control the amount of hurt that would come into their life. And so they set up this major structure of systems in their life. And they attempt to control it by the means of that. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. How about this? The penetrating effects of guilt and shame. These are people who expect worst possible outcomes. These are people...